It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Welcome to Everyone Talks to Liz. So glad you're hanging out with us. Um, By the way, I can't believe this. This is our fourth installment of the podcast. And we already have a growing legion of fans beyond my mom and kids. Um, (laughs) Really, seriously, I'm hearing from some of you guys out there who are already repeat listeners. And I just go absolutely crazy for the feedback. So please keep it coming. You can reach me on Twitter at Liz Clayman. Don't be shy. I absolutely love your feedback. All right. If you've been listening, you know that this is really the place where the most incredible but true stories of success unfold. And and we want them to be ones that kind of leave you shaking your head thinking, is this person real? Did this really happen? Well, yes, they are. And yes, it did. This month, and this is important, you know, this marks the 75th anniversary of the June 6, 1944 D-Day invasion of Normandy, France, Mm. where Britain, the United States, and Canada secretly planned and pulled off the largest seaborne invasion in history. And it was really a move that would eventually lead to the victory over and the extinguishing of Germany and the Nazis' effort to, well, take over the world. D-Day involves some of the greatest displays of bravery ever recorded. So it is most appropriate then that you meet James Byler. Um, James is a 33-year-old stock trader at Barclays, the British banking giant. They have massive operations in Midtown Manhattan, and and he's running the place. He's 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 one of their top top traders. But you know, James, the Wall Street trader, hardly completes the whole picture. I am honored to have James Byler here for everyone talks to Liz. Hi, James. Hi. Thank you. Uh, how are you? I'm doing very well right now. Um... End of a, another long day, wild day in the stock market. You make um, money? Uh, no, no, not today. Is, uh, <laughs> but the markets were so high. Yeah, but that's that's not really kind of we're, we're we're not <laughs> we're sort of market agnostic. The necessarily direction of the market isn't what matters to us. It's a uh, few more few more things going on. Yeah. So just when you guys think you're having a great day, mm, some traders not today. No, not today. <laughs> Okay, Long Island boy, Um, Mm -hmm. let's rewind this clock. You're a kindergartner in the late 1980s. Yes. And at your school, they're asking each kid what they want to be when they grow up because uh, they need to print it in the yearbook. Yes. You had yearbooks in kindergarten? We did. Yeah, I still have it. (laughs) And you say what when they say, what do you want to be when you grow up? I, at five years old, wanted to join the Army. Where did that come from? I'm I'm not entirely sure to be honest. Um I've I've been talking to my mom to try to figure it out was it GI Joe's or was it just you know I I know Desert Storm was going on at the time and I saw a lot of that on the news um and that that was something that deeply kind of like burned in me watching. Um I I couldn't tell you, but it was something when I saw it I knew I knew I wanted it. Your 5-year-old brain was able to articulate I want to be a soldier. Yes. Yes. Now through the years. You don't outgrow this? No. Um, my parents and my grandparents were hoping I would. They thought, <laughs> like many things with kids, it was going to be sort of like a phase. 
Um, and, and again, like if, if you look at my drawings and anything I wrote about in elementary school and, and later, it was always about the military. May I ask um, what your parents did for their profession? Uh, so my dad's a lawyer and my mom's a high school biology teacher. Okay, so your mom and dad, Janet and Phil, I know them. I've yes. met them. They're lovely. Sure. They say, eh, no, 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 no. You have to go to college first. Yeah. And then it's your life. Then you can decide. But if you still want to join up, fine. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were kind of hoping that once you got to college, that would dissipate and you'd be like almost everybody else out there saying, I want to make money. I want to get out there. I want to do whatever. Just yes. not risk your life in the military. Yeah, so that was definitely the hope with them. My older brother also, from a very young age, wanted to be in the Army. But with him, they sort of believed it a little bit more. He's much more a type A personality. <laughs> I was always drawing cartoons and stuff in my books, and they took me as a little bit more type B. And I remember telling my mom in high school, I was like, hey, I, I really want to be a Marine. And her telling me, like, yeah, that's great, but ha- have you seen these sort of like graphic design colleges? And have you, have you looked at this? And I'm like... Yeah, that's great, but like, I, I want to join the Marines. Seriously. <laughs> so off you go to college, and, and you pick yeah. Purdue, so you're mm-hmm. a Boilermaker. Um, you joined the ROTC Platoon Leaders Program there, right? And, and you graduated from college, but you graduate once you're in that program as what, a first lieutenant? Uh, a second lieutenant. Second lieutenant, yes. and you head to basic training. I do. If you believe Hollywood, James, and... Heck, I'm from L.A., so I believe everything Hollywood says. No. Uh, but whether it's Heartbreak Ridge or, or Full Metal Jacket or The Great Santini, these, these Marine movies, basic training is brutally tough. Is that a fair assessment? Is it understating it? Is it overstating it? Yes, it's absolutely a fair statement, and I, I craved it. I, I wanted that. that Any time I saw something, whether it was a movie or I talked to someone who was a veteran – and they described the the intensity of the training that you would have to go through, especially if you want to do a combat arms, like if you want to be infantry or anything very difficult. Um, I just I, I lit up. I got excited. Talk about your most difficult moment in basic training. Oh, God. Um, so there are definitely a few that I could talk about. And it's kind of hard to say which one was the most difficult because – there they, they were moments that tested me in sort of different angles, some of them purely physical and, you know, it's you just want to stop moving and you just think you can't carry on from sort of a purely physical perspective. Others are psychological. Um, but there's one moment in particular I'll talk about. So this is while I was at a TBS, which stands for The Basic School. And this is uh, basic officer training uh, that you do down in uh, Quantico, Virginia. I remember um, this was later on in the training cycle, and I had gotten tapped on a field exercise to lead a uh, platoon-sized night attack. Now, this is, at at least up to that point in time, a very complex operation to sort of be in charge of and and to lead. Um, I I greatly underestimated um, exactly how hard this was going to be from a a number of different facets. Um, And... I, I just remember it, it was an entire day uh, affair, even though eventually the, the attack wouldn't take place until night. Mm-hmm. The night before you get the order from your higher up, you have to take that information, process it, um, give an order to your um, um, fellow students who are also competing for some of the same uh, jobs and slots that you want to do in, in the Marine Corps. 
um, you have to brief it to them. And then there's a lot of things you have to do throughout that day. You, you have to do leaders reconnaissance. You have to get your other Marines like maneuvered into the right place in order to be prepared for that one moment finally at night when you do attack the enemy position. And that day just took everything out of me. Um, I, I didn't sleep at all that night, um, just trying to process all the information that I was given. Um, I, it just, th the entire day was just, a, there's a lot of uncertainty inherent. They don't tell you everything. Um, so there's a lot of uncertainty in, in the way that you're operating and exactly where the enemy's located and... Um, I made the mistake of not eating or taking care of myself, so I put a lot of extra stress on myself that way. Um, and I just remember by the end of it, I felt that I had done absolutely everything wrong. Um, <laughs> I, you know, the the attack didn't go off at the time it was supposed to go off at. Um, people were confused where they were supposed to be exactly. Um, we we eventually successfully completed it, but just at the end of that thing, I, I remember my um, instructor just. You know, you did this wrong, you did this wrong, you did this wrong, you got that many people killed, you did this <sighs> wrong. And I remember sitting there just like, I I should never, ever be put in charge of anyone because <laughs> I, I deserve to die right now is what I deserve. Well, like, it just, it, it shredded my soul the entire experience. But, uh, you did get put in charge. I did, um, yes. Uh, because you got to go through that. You have to go through hell before you get to heaven, obviously. Yes. Yeah. Um, the September 11th attacks had happened a few years before. You were put in charge of, what, a platoon of 46 men? Uh, yes. And roughly. the Marines sent you and that plat platoon to Marines, what, Mountain Warfare Training in Yosemite, California. And at that point, did you know they were preparing you for something? Yes. Yes. So we, we had received a talk from our battalion commander that we were doing a combat deployment and we knew we didn't know exactly where but we knew it was going to be afghanistan and uh yeah no you, you knew that was coming and that was 2009 so then it comes less than a year later september 2010 uh, roughly and yeah. there you are the third battalion fifth marines led by you deployed to the Sangin Valley of Afghanistan to battle the Taliban by securing the area and helping the locals, as I understand it. What are you thinking as the plane lands on Afghanistan soil? Um, well, I, I just had one platoon, not, not the entire battalion, mm -hmm. but I, I remember the moment we landed and uh, seeing, uh, it was in a C-130 aircraft. I remember seeing the back doors drop down and there was this huge fire off in the distance just shooting up into the air. And um, it I wasn't sure what it was, but it was just like this very intense sort of uh, um, entry into the country. Was it a foreboding feeling? Yeah, yeah. It was very ominous. And, and especially by that point in time when we had actually landed in Afghanistan, we had a lot more detail where we were going. We knew we were going to Sangin, which was extremely kinetic, extremely violent, and we, we knew it was going to be bad. We we were reading the reports of the Marines and the British Royal Marines who had been there before us, and we knew it was going to be a, a tough situation. Um, well, so. as, I've always wondered this. As soldiers head into battle, do they prepare themselves for the worst? I mean, do they allow themselves to anticipate that this could be it, I might not come back? And I ask that because in Saving Private Ryan— they all write letters to their parents just in case. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, you can't. You you can't fully prepare yourself. It, it's it's something that you know you can think about. Um, you can try to understand, but you you don't know until until you do it and you get there. I didn't write any letters to my parents. So, uh, God, I, I I didn't want to even think about putting them through that. Um, I I sort of always had this thought in my mind for whatever reason that I was either going to come back in one piece much, you know, maybe taking minor injuries or I was going to die. It was going to be one of those two extremes. I didn't really imagine there would be kind of like a, a almost sort of middle ground where I'd be catastrophically wounded, but not, you know, yeah. Well, you're stellar. there, you're there about a month and then you wake up in the pre-dawn hours of October 17th. Uh, yes. Yeah. It's my blown up day. Yeah. What do you remember of that morning as you headed out on your mission for the day? Oh, God. Um, I remember the patrol base I was operating out of. I remember it was a joint patrol of one of my squads of Marines and the Afghan National Army. We had been conducting joint patrols together for uh, you know a, a little while, a few days at that point. Um. And it felt, you know, like any other patrol that, you know, I I had done up to that point. I didn't think it was necessarily going to be any different. Um, A lot of the patrols we had done so far were very interesting, um, to to say the least. But, um, you know, I I was still getting a feel for the ground. Um, I was still getting a feel for the the country and the environment we were in. And it was it was very, very surreal. Um, so I didn't really have expectations. Mm-hmm. I was just, I was still trying to take things in as as they came. You're walking down a dusty alleyway, mm-hmm. and there's a skirmish. Yeah, yeah. Describe yeah. what happened. Um, so anytime there's um, gunfire and your senior commanders get a report of uh, troops in contact, um, you know they want more information. They want to know what's going on. And uh, as the senior man in the platoon, um, I'm the guy holding the radio, and I'm talking over it, trying to explain to the COC what's going on, giving them updates. Um, and at this point in time, a, a number of my Marines and Afghans had run down this kind of long alleyway um, in pursuit of an enemy. And as being aggressive as they're supposed to be. Um, I caught up with them, uh, gotten them to sort of stop and, you know, let's recalibrate, refocus, let's coordinate a little bit, you know, um, don't just go running off into, you know, yeah. putting everyone else at risk. Um, so at this point in time, um, I'm talking on the radio, um, getting bearings of the, you know, terrain environment that we're in. And somehow in this process, I don't, I don't exactly remember cause it, kind of rocked me pretty hard what precisely happened, but um, I had stopped off the beaten trail that um, I had just walked down and everyone else had just ran down, but like several of us had run by this place. um, And, you know, I just one false step off the beaten path. And, um, you know, that's, that's all it took. That's all it takes. Um, You know, one bad step and, you know, you're a casualty. You know, it's a, it's a very unforgiving environment. And, um, you know, the next thing I knew, I'm laying in a cloud of dust. I I never went unconscious the entire time. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I remember the whole thing, dude. Like some guys, they, they step on IEDs and they 
come back to consciousness in uh, Walter Reed, you know, back in the States days later. Um, I call them lucky. You're better off that way. Um, I remember laying on my side, um, looking at my hands, my wrists, um, feeling for my legs and just kind of feeling bloody stumps. Um, I, I remember that. Um, I remember seeing like my pinky hanging off the end by like a thread. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, this is getting a little graphic. And is that okay? Cool. Well, it's real. <laughs> um, but I remember looking at all these things and like just, damn it, James, you stepped on one, didn't you? <laughs> it's kind of like, I don't know. Um, but yeah. Who saved so. you? Uh, so there were two Marines, um, close by me. Um, there was Lieutenant Dorsey and, uh, Lance Corporal Matthew Brome, um, who neither one of them were medics, neither one of them were specialists, but, um, everyone had been trained in combat lifesaver. Everyone knew how to do basic first aid. Everyone knew how to put on tourniquets because the fact of the matter is, you know, you only have so many corpsmen to go around and anyone at any point can get injured and you all have to know how to do this. Mm -hmm. So these Marines who were not specialists in, you know, life-saving necessarily um, were the first on the scene. They immediately got to work because if you don't have someone doing this and within like a few minutes, like call it two minutes and you've severed both your arteries, you can bleed out and that's it. You're gone. Um, so these guys very quickly um, got tourniquets on me. They got bandages on me. Are they talking to you? Are you saying anything? Uh, not really. I'm, I'm still kind of a little um, – I'm a little rocked. I'm a little out of it. Could so you I'm hear? Not... Because the blasts yeah, are loud. I could hear everything. Um, okay. I could hear them talking. I could hear their voices. Um, I. So then uh, – you know, it, it, I very slowly kind of came back to cognition as time went on, um, and I kind of realized what exactly was going on. Um, and I remember there was one Afghan soldier with us who I made eye contact with, and um, we, we were up kind of a narrow alley, so we, we couldn't get our vehicles up there. And it's, you know, we're maybe like 100 yards up this alleyway. And so it's like, all right, well, we're going to have to carry this guy all the way back to the main road to, to medically evacuate him. Um, it's like, so... <laughs> This Afghan soldier, somehow there's like a 10-year-old kid with a wheelbarrow full of veggies coming back from the market, coming right by us. And uh, to the, it, this was just normal. This was just normal reality to, to the people living here, this, this sort of violence just continuously going on. And he just runs up to the kid, dumps out the wheelbarrow of vegetables, takes the wheelbarrow, runs it over to us. And then they put me in the wheelbarrow. To, to get me down the alleyway quick enough to a vehicle so that they could you know, medically evacuate me out of here. Was there any hope that they could reattach something? No. no oh, way. God, no. This the, the, My legs were blown. I don't know. No one ever saw them again. Um, you know, battleground medicine has advanced so much so that soldiers who suffer these traumatic amputations like you did, uh, they would have died during World War II or the Korean War, but they're now surviving. Oh, e even 15 years ago. I, really? No, no way I would have lived. Fifteen years ago, I would have not have lived. Desert uh, storms, just, they weren't able to do? No. Uh, even Iraq in 2003, 2004, I, I wouldn't have made it. Absolutely not. It's just our, our processes and procedures, our technology, the, the skill of everyone from, you know, the, the first Marine on the scene to the, to the surgeon who was in the helicopter picking me up. Um, just it was such a well-oiled machine, our combat medevacuate evacuation process it's incredible
I found some statistics that go from about 2003 to 2014 from Iraq and Afghanistan war military casualties. According to this organization, Congressional Research Service, 1,558 soldiers have had either traumatic or surgical amputations. 7,224 suffered severe brain injuries. Yeah. You did not. Nope. You know, how much do those numbers that I just put out there, how how much do they have to do with the Taliban turning to this production of improvised explosive devices? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I'm thinking of The Hurt Locker where yeah, I, I, that movie where he, Jeremy Renard is, is yeah. neutralizing bombs right and left. Um, I think a lot of it's these guys are surviving injuries that again you would you would just be dead normally um so i think a lot of the guys who died in previous wars if they had lived would would still have some of these ailments um the explosives that they are using these ieds are significantly larger than just a simple landmine that used to be used um they're they're very powerful explosives that the taliban are using so I, you know, I, I can't explain why I came out the way I did or anyone else. I, I had no brain damage. I had no, um, I, I, I don't really have PTSD. Um, I, I only lost my pinkies, not my other fingers. I, I don't know how that happened. You know, um, you, you consider yourself lucky, obviously. Well, yeah, I'm alive. Yes. Of course. Of course. I, I, I know you eventually made it to Walter Reed mm. hospital back in America and, you're immediately hit with what multiple surgeries? Yeah, yeah, I, I did at least twenty, at least twenty. Twenty surgeries. Yeah. Was there any point where you said, "I'm out. I can't. This is just crazy." Um, I never said that out loud, but I think I I thought it to myself a lot. I think I stared at some of the life support and contemplated yanking the plug out. <laughs> it, it, it's horrible. It's horrible what you have to go through. And um, yeah, I I had my dark moments for what, sure kept you from doing that oh god um my family my friends um i i, I couldn't tell you exactly what just you, you just i you have to keep going somehow um i i i guess dying um under those conditions i i wouldn't have been at peace with um you know i i knew i was still capable of doing a lot of things i knew i had my brain um and I knew there were some things in society I could do to provide value, um, but I, I didn't know what life was going to look like, no. Somehow you managed to remain positive. I mean, I'm always thinking of the actor Gary Sinise, who in Forrest Gump gave that brilliant but and classic portrayal of sort of the angry Vietnam vet, the yeah. amputee Lieutenant Dan. You and I have talked about that in the past. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so don't get me wrong. There's some guys that... Um, you know, they they find themselves in those kind of dark spirits. And it's tough. Um, I don't know why I've always had a sense of humor about it, but just I think my personality was just better wired to deal with um, a lot of the a, a lot of the struggles. Mm -hmm. I think I've just had sort of a comedic brain that's able to look at a lot of situations with humor. Um, you, you know, on the lieutenant, yeah, you know, I'll give you an example, like. On the Lieutenant Dan subject. Uh, so for Halloween, me and my friends did a uh, Forrest Gump theme for Halloween. Come on. And like, yeah, so of course I do Lieutenant Dan. Um, 
And oh so we, we go bar hopping and um, we go to this one bar and, you know, this, this one guy comes up to us and he's just like, he, he's a little toasted. He's, mm-hmm. he's a little gone. And he's like, oh, Forrest Gump, that's awesome. He sees me and comes over and he's like, hey, dude, Lieutenant Dan, dude, how'd you do the legs? <laughs> and I'm just like, <laughs> and I stop and everyone looks over at him. It's just like a gasp of air, like, <gasps> And like, I, I just look up at him and I'm just kind of like, bro, it's, it's really about to get awkward for you. <laughs> and like, he's standing there with this little grin and he's looking around like, what, what, and what'd I say? And then like, you can see like the moment it dawns on him and like just the, the, the color just slowly <laughs> leaves his face when he realizes like what he just said, but God bless him, wh- whoever he is. Cause the next thing he said is like, man, what, what do you want to drink? Like, what, what, what can I get you? It is amazing but. that you you have this special somehow ability to see the sun versus the clouds because, you know, the way I met James Byler, you guys should know, is that I work with Building Homes for Heroes, which is this small charity that's growing and growing exponentially. But we build custom mortgage-free homes for the worst wounded, and we rehabbed your parents' home for when you were coming back, and that's mm-hmm. that's how I met you. But you know, I'm thinking about um, Chris Levy, the Army Ranger, whom yeah. we also rehabbed a home for. He lost both legs above the knee, just like you. And he told me that when he was at Walter Reed recovering, he was so angry that he didn't have his knee joints because it's easier to walk with prosthetics when they can hook them to what's left of your knee joints. And he was complaining, he told me. And one of the top military brass there said, they admonished him and they said, don't be joint jealous. And I had never heard that before. And it, it just broke my heart because right then and there I realized yeah. there's almost a hierarchy of in- injuries. And when you don't have that knee joint, that puts you at that much more of a disadvantage oh, yeah. physically. Yeah. There's uh, there, there's a broad swath of injuries. Um, and, you know, that's something we did at the hospital. I remember sitting around and comparing, like, injuries, like, well, look what I can do. Or, you know, you kind of play baseball cards with that a little bit. Um, I, I will tell you there are some injuries I did not sustain that I think are far worse than what I've had to deal with. Um, I, in my opinion, I think number one is the brain. I think damage to the brain is the worst thing that can happen to you, um, in, in my opinion. Because as long as you have that, as long as you can think, you can always do something, you know? Um, also, very traumatic burns. You know, people who are burnt really bad. You, you've met some, you know, soldiers yeah. afflicted with that as well. Um, you know, there's... There's a lot of other injuries. Um, I, I won't even go into some of them. But. Well, it's it's impressive when you talk about the brain. If you've got that, you can always do something. Yeah. And once you were out of the hospital, mm-hmm. your something was, I'm going to go get my MBA, your yeah. master's in business. Yeah. yeah. What sparked that? So I, I had kind of an early panic in the hospital. Like I remember sitting in the hospital bed and – thinking like I've, I've always had a drive or I, I guess you could say a work ethic. Like I've always had a desire to be doing something for society. Mm-hmm. I've always wanted to be working. I've always wanted to be busy. And for me uh, up until that point, it was the Marine Corps. Um, 
But it became very apparent to me that I wasn't doing that anymore. I'm not going back to that line of work. I'm not going back to that life I had. So what else can I do? What else is there in this world that might interest me, might fascinate me, and that I feel is important work? Um, so one of the things I started doing when I started getting a little bit better and a little bit more mobile and able to leave the hospital is meeting with other professionals, so specifically veterans who had left the military and were, had gone into other industries. So you meet this one guy who was working as a sales trader at Credit Suisse back in, this was maybe April 2011, roughly, mm -hmm. um, who said, you know what, man, uh, just sit next to me for a day. Maybe you like it. Maybe you don't. Um, but this is one more thing for you to get exposed to. So I was like, all right. Came up here on a Friday um, from D.C., sat next to him on the trading floor, and I didn't really know what was going on. Um, it was kind of like being in a, you know, uh, um, like a Nassau command station or something. But I heard yelling. I heard st I could feel stress, and I'm just like, all right, I kind of like this. Like I heard one guy just like yell at another person and curse, and I'm like, all right, yeah, I think I get into this. And, um, you know, I just whatever it was about that energy and everyone I met, everyone I met was just so patriotic and was just so positive about what I had done. And they're just like, hey, you know, here's my card. If you have any questions, you know, please don't hesitate. And I'd had just such a great experience on, on a trading floor that I'm just like, all right, whatever it is, I want to do this. I want to go in this direction. So I, I kind of figured out at that point in time, all right, well, I probably can't go from hospital bed to, to trading floor. Um, since then, a lot of uh, firms have sort of built out uh, veterans integration programs. They have their own internal sort of academies. Um, but uh, I decided that MBA was the appropriate sort of method of transition. So you got into NYU, which is an incredible program, Stern yeah, School of stuff. Business. Yeah. Uh, what challenges did you encounter just trying to get to class? Oh, man. Well, that that's more gripes I have with, I guess you could say, the city of New York mm -hmm. um, as opposed to NYU. And NYU itself was accessible. I, I had no issues with that. But, um, you know, just getting from my apartment or where I was staying to the university, um, you know, there's not a lot of elevators for subways. And even if they are, you know, there, they don't work a lot. Um, there's a lot of curbs that don't have necessarily ramps. And if you've been to the village, it's, it, it's not the most handicap friendly place. Like a lot Greenwich of village. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. It's, it, it's not, it's not built for wheelchairs. Um, so yeah, I mean, route planning was always a little, little careful. Um, you had to be, I was always allowing more time to get somewhere, um, in, in case of, I mean, who knows what? There, there are always issues. There are always problems. Um, but you made it through. Eventually, and, and you know, pe people understood if I was late. I mean, it's it's class. If if you if you put in the work, if you study, I mean, no one's going to give you a hard time because you know it's, you're in the wheelchair and well, getting I the better not hard. give you a hard time. No, I, I, so I <laughs> I never had any of that, but. Yeah, even to this day, I think the other day uh, one of the subway elevators was out and it wasn't posted on their website. And you know, I always write an angry email, but um, it it screws up my morning. Like I'm gonna be late to work, or there are a lot of days I've just you know crawled up subway steps and asked a good Samaritan to carry my wheelchair because I don't want to be late and I don't want to have to take this subway to the next stop to take an elevator and and come back. Right. You know. Right. Well, to me. I've always um, been very aware of this, and I also mm -hmm. have known a lot of people who 
have lost their legs. Um, just my tennis teacher, <laughs> believe it or not. Yeah. He was a tennis player who had no legs and he would wheel around on the, the tennis court and he was incredible. But I was always aware of that. And yet I don't think that most Americans understand the challenges of people with disabilities. Yeah. And I, I think it absolutely has to be at the federal level that this stuff is regulated and required or else people just aren't going to do it. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know exactly what the answer is, but – what I would suggest is any um, city official or federal official that has any questions or wants to understand what it's like, just go about your day and life in a wheelchair for like a week or a day, 24 hours, whatever it is. And um, yeah, I mean, that's an easy thing to do. Um, Not easy is getting a Wall Street trading job. You landed no. at Barclays. At a time when this is post-financial crisis, they weren't exactly hiring willy-nilly. How did that come about, and what was that like for you to land that job? Oh, man. Uh, so definitely trying to get a job in sales and trading was tough, um, just just even from the get-go. Um, a, a lot of firms, as you say, aren't you know aggressively recruiting as much as they had in, in years past. Mm. So you really had to scrap. You really had to hustle. You had to make a contact and be the one to take the initiative of, you know, hey, do you mind if I come on the trading floor and meet some more people and – you know, when you show up, have an understanding of markets, have an understanding of like, where's the S&P, where's the 10 year and, and things like that. Like it was a very high standard of um, uh, doing your homework and of just hustling and try asking to meet people and just kind of, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I just tried to pretend I was a virus and the longer I'm around, <laughs> the more likely you're going to catch me. It was kind of my perspective. Just hang out as much as possible. Someone's going to catch me. Um and, you know, I, I got an internship and I remember the, the guy who eventually ended up hiring me, I sat down with him over a coffee for, an, it must have been two hours, maybe a little bit more than that. But I just had a conversation with him. Um, he was a really smart guy. He was a little crazy. And I was just like, oh, man, this is going to be great if I can work for this guy. He's, this guy's he just had a very big personality. Mm -hmm. um, and he, he had a lot of respect for what I'd been through, I, I think, um, and what it took to get to that point. And I mean, he, he never really said it out loud, but, um, you know, he, he's the person who uh, decided to give a guy like me a shot and a chance, um, you know, to, to um, you know, prove myself. And um, you know, I'm grateful for that. Like, I don't, I don't think I'm entitled to any of it. And that's one of the things I've loved about Wall Street is like it's I don't feel like anything was really sort of given to me. I've, I've always felt like, OK, my background and my history is sort of a first round interview. It's it's a foot in the door. No pun intended. But um, <laughs> Come on. Uh, it, they never it, it was never a gimme. You always had to from that point in time, prove yourself and show that, you, you know, your stuff and you can own it. And you have you have. I hope. And. I think a lot about the fact that this month marks the 75th anniversary of, of D-Day. I went mm. there for the first time this past Christmas to visit the grave of my great uncle Jack Fabish, mm -hmm. who had died in the D-Day invasion. He fought for Canada. When you see those beaches and those cliffs, knowing that the Nazis had perches way up high and they were picking off these brave soldiers who were trying to climb sheer cliffs. Yeah. 
They were so unbelievably brave, against all odds, to take Normandy and eventually beat the Germans. What do you want people to know about soldiers who, like them and like you, stepped up? Um, people should know that we're not fundamentally different people. I th- one of the things that does concern me is I, I feel like there's kind of a growing division between civilians and, and veterans and currently active duty soldiers. Um, we're not fundamentally different people. We're all Americans. Um, believe it or not, many of you have it in you if you were to, to summon it to do that. Um, but you, you got to love your community. You got to love your country. Um, you, you have to believe in what you're doing. Um, and a lot of those people who scaled those cliffs and who sacrificed on those beaches, um, there were just 17, 18-year-old kids. Many of them graduated high school, went to training, and that was it. That was their life. Um, you know, I, I, I really think that kids today, even millennials, have it in them to, to do that if it was called. Um, but Let us hope so. I would hope. I, I know there's there, there there are enough out there doing the job today that um you know our, our our country will be all right at least from that perspective. As we finish up, what happened to the two Marines who saved you? Uh, one of them, uh, Lieutenant Dorsey. Now uh, I, I believe he's a major still in the Marine Corps. Um, or not, he, I don't know if he got promoted yet. I gotta check up on him. Um, but he's he's still in the Marine Corps, um, still doing well, excelling as as he deserves. Uh, the other one um, was unfortunately killed in action. Um, about two weeks later, um, he was killed by uh, Blue on Blue. It was another Afghan soldier who was actually inside our base. That um, when this uh, Marine uh, went to go stand post, um, the Afghan went up behind him and shot him dead and jumped the wall. Uh, so no, I, I never got to thank him. Um, I never got to see him again. Um, but, um, you know, he, he's a Marine that did his job and, um, you know, what else can you say? You can say that your story is one that needs to be told again and again. And I'm so grateful, James, that you told it here on Everyone Talks to Liz, Captain James Byler, Marine and badass on the trading floor. I'm okay. Thank you so much. Thank you. My producer, Tanya Joseph, and I really thought, you guys, that that James would be the perfect Everyone Talks to Liz guest. Um, Tanya, I, you know, I told you he'd be great. Yeah, he's great. I really got the chills. It's such a powerful story. It really oh. is. Um, thank you all so much for listening. Where here at Everyone Talks to Liz, we always remind you, Nobody gets to see a rainbow without seeing a little rain first. Join me next week for a brand new one. I'm Liz Clayman. Thanks so much, and thank a veteran. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.